We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. But if you'd find your way to Ruth chapter 2 in the Old Testament, Joshua judges Ruth. Just as a quick reminder, at the end of chapter 1, we learn that Naomi and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, returned to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The author leaves some kind of suspense here, waiting to see what will happen next. And we pick up there then in chapter 2. It says here, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. It's a common practice, allow the more poor and destitute to follow along and glean from the corners and what was fell from the wagons. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Probably not by chance, but God's providence that she landed there, ended up there. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels, and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you, should not, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant. 
though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here, eat, and eat of the bread, and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied, and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until you have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this, with his young women, and that people do not meet you in, the, in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. Wonderful to be back here again uh, with you, and if you would turn your Bible to Luke's Gospel, please. Luke chapter 1. be continuing our series early on here in the Gospel of Luke. The last verse of that hymn has been correctly pointed out before uh, is uh, something we should be uh, careful of uh, how we think about the Bible. The Bible stands every test we give it. Should you be testing the Bible, putting the Bible to the test? There's something that could be a little bit amiss about that. Of course, it's going to pass if you're faithful and honest and true to God, but I wonder if we might ask, how about you? Will you pass the test that the Bible gives you? Good thought, isn't it? The Bible stands every test, but the question the Bible asks is who will stand before God if he marks iniquities? Of course, no one will except Christ or those in Christ, so... Good thought there. The uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke has begun with an introduction to his friend Theophilus, trying to introduce him and inform him well about the things of the faith. And he begins with the announcement of uh, the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias and then, of course, indirectly to Elizabeth, that elderly couple, that elderly godly couple who followed the law and were blameless in it. And God used them to bring about the, um, the birth of John the Baptist, who is going to be a, a, a forerunner of the, the Messiah. And then uh, last time we looked at Christ's birth announced to Mary, 
in verses 26 through 38. But I wanted to back up just for a second and just say this. The Old Testament ended with the dual promise of a forerunner and of the coming of the Lord to his temple. If you just turn a few pages back before Matthew to Malachi 3 and 4, you'll see that. There was a promise of a forerunner coming and the promise of the Lord suddenly coming to his temple. And those words basically were followed by 400 years of darkness, the intertestamental period as it's called. In terms of revelation, it was like the heavens were brass. There was nothing coming down from God. Exceedingly rare the word was in those days to the point of non-existence as far as we know. Uh, the, The providential work of God did not cease. The sovereignty of God did not cease, obviously, but he was not giving new revelation. Sort of like back in the days of Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, it said the word of the Lord was rare or precious, rare in those days, uh, and there was no open vision. There was no school of the prophets ongoing, and God restarted his work with Samuel in a very dark time uh, after, uh, in, in the late period of the judges. But in any case, the word of the Lord was rare here as well until an outburst of new revelation and angelic visitations occurred at the beginning of the New Testament, and that era also begins with song, as we call it, the song, the uh, worship of Mary that we'll see here, and also later on of Zacharias. The uh, portion that we'll be looking at here today is called the Magnificat, which means a hymn or song of praise. It comes in uh, verse number 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, and it's the first word in the Latin uh, from which we get the title of that section in verse 46. We're actually going to back up to verse 39 and cover that as well. Uh, The text, interestingly, doesn't say that Mary sang this song. It would be kind of odd, I suppose, for Mary to go visit Elizabeth and break out in an actual song uh, to whatever tune we would never know. But uh, she at least said, and that's what the text here has, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. So really she gave this uh, poetry, and I'm sure that uh, maybe you've heard it's been put to song, and uh, folks sing this uh, as worship to God. What we have to remember, however, is that the Magnificat is not about Mary. It's about Mary's God. The whole point is that Mary is magnifying the Lord. And she says so in the opening two lines that her soul magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. What she's saying is that with her whole being, she extols, praises, glorifies, and worships the Lord and takes joy in her God. So we begin, though, with Mary's visiting uh, Elizabeth. And this is an interesting little portion. Let me read this section in verse 39. It says, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And just pause there for a second. It's hard, it's hard for you to maybe get the, the picture. If you haven't been to the nation of Israel, you haven't looked at a topographical map lately or seen pictures, if you look at a picture from the hill country of Judea, I mean, you see hills as far as the eye can see and she traveled a great distance to see uh, her relative Elizabeth Um, 
and share about their respective pregnancies. Just think about this for a minute, especially you ladies. Who else would you be able to talk to if something like what happened to Mary happened to you? Who could you talk to? I mean, you could, what am I going to tell Joseph? <laughs> you know, my parents. Uh, oh, but the angel said that my relative Elizabeth has had a similar thing happen to her. So I'm going to go talk to her. How about that? Remember, Mary was not in Judea at the time. Where did Mary live? Anybody remember? Somebody said it, I think. Nazareth in Galilee, not in Judea. She was living in Nazareth. Chapter 126 explicitly tells that the sixth month with Elizabeth, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to visit with Mary and give her the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. This is as much as 50 miles or more distant from where Zacharias and Elizabeth lived. But Mary went right away after she saw the angel. And we know that because of how the text lays out the timing. It was in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And then if you look down uh, in, uh, where is it? In verse 56, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. So according to the normal time of uh, gestation, we have Mary getting the message in the sixth month, making arrangements quickly, going, and she spends three months with uh, Elizabeth, and then she leaves before the birth, because the next verse talks about the birth of John the Baptist, and uh, perhaps she left because she's beginning to show, and she doesn't uh, need to have all of the People coming around that are going to be coming around, and uh, Elizabeth has been kind of hiding herself out too because of the uh, uniqueness of the situation. So Mary has to go back. And by the way, we don't know when Joseph found out about this whole situation. It may have been after this three-month marker. When Mary knows now for sure, you know, she's missed her cycle and she's pregnant, and now what do we do? And uh, the angel has to go and visit with Joseph and talk to him about this because of the uniqueness of the situation and so on. Oh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of things going on. But uh, she went right away and saw uh, Elizabeth. So the first three months of Mary's pregnancy were spent away from home with her relative Elizabeth during Elizabeth's last three months of her pregnancy. Isn't that interesting, the overlap that they shared together in that time. Now, earlier in, in chapter 1 and verse 36, uh, it says this in 36, Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And so the Gabriel informed Mary that Elizabeth was with child, and he said, Elizabeth, your relative, which is, she knew that very well, that Elizabeth was her relative, but how, how is that exactly? Because Elizabeth was of what lineage? Do you remember? Zacharias and Elizabeth were of what tribal lineage? We looked at it briefly before. They were both of the Levitical line, okay? Levites. Well, what about, what about Mary? What's her lineage? Well, we find her lineage in chapter 3 in the genealogy that's there. Joseph's uh, genealogy is given in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapter 3 gives the genealogy down to uh, Mary. It says Jesus was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, not actually, but supposed, the son of Heli, Heli or Heli, 
H-E-L-I, the, the, apparently the father of Mary. And that takes it all the way, that genealogy takes us all the way back to like David and uh, you know all those guys all the way back. And so she is not actually directly through uh, he, Heli or Heli, uh, a descendant of the Levites. She was a descendant of King David through her father, which was not of the tribe of Levi. So what's the family connection? A feasible explanation seems to be that her family connection was through Mary's mother, so that Mary was both of Davidic descent and also Levitical descent. I don't know what the family tree looked like specifically, but Mary seems to have a genetic connection to the Davidic line. The adoptive father, Joseph, was the legal connection to the Davidic line. And so you have this multiplicity of connections back. And for me, a new realization was that the coming king, Jesus, if Mary is related to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is of the Levitical line, then Jesus has not only Davidic constitution, but also Levitic constitution in him. Isn't that interesting? Now, he's going to be a priest, Jesus is, and is, and will be, but not the Levitical kind, let us be clear. He is of the Melchizedek order, as Hebrews 6.20 emphasizes. So the big thing that happened when Mary came in is as follows in verse 41. It happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. The six-month-in-the-womb uh, baby John, the Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So the, some people have called this the quickening of John the Baptist. Uh, when the sound of Mary's voice reached Elizabeth, the baby leaped in her womb. This was obviously weird. It wasn't just like, you know, he was in there kicking like babies will do at six, seven, eight, nine months near to the end of the pregnancy. Uh, Some kind of pre-birth excitement there that John unconsciously experienced. And the next phrase explains why, because Elizabeth herself was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit was upon her in an influential manner and also upon her son. In fact, the text tells us earlier on in uh, chapter 1, Let's just go down and find it. I have the verse listed here somewhere. Uh, when the angel came to Zacharias, it says in verse 15 that he will be great in the sight of the Lord, this son John, and he will drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. There it is in my notes. That's an unusual work of God, isn't it? In how much of John's life was he going to be filled with the Spirit of God? All of it. In how much of your life are you filled with the Spirit of God? I venture to say that many of us run on half or less, eighth or less tank of filling, as it were. Some of us are running on fumes. How about praying in the morning when you wake up, Lord, would you help me to be influenced by the Spirit of God today? I don't want to fall into temptation. I don't want to sin. Keep me close. Keep me from sin. Keep my mind on the Word of God. Turn my thoughts toward heavenly things, not earthly things. Help me not be anxious for anything. Help me to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you pray that? You know the Word of God enough that you can pray those kinds of prayers and ask? Now listen. 
I don't want to just say the negative and say, look, you're, on, you know, you're running on an eighth of a tank and you're about to run out of steam. You know, the Spirit of God is not influencing you like he could and should. But it, it, I want to say this on the positive side. This is a possible state of existence for you. You might be like in despair. Oh, I'm struggling so with sin. Well, it's possible for you to exist in a state in which it's objectively the case that you are heavily influenced by the Spirit of God, not heavily influenced by fill in the blank. What's the blank? I don't know what the blank is for you, but there's something in the blank. You're heavily influenced by media. You're heavily influenced by, I don't know, substances. You're heavily influenced by, what's that? Oh, you're heavily influenced by sports. I, I, she said that. I didn't say that. <laughs> you can blame her. Uh, you're heavily influenced by something. You know, heavily influenced by materialism. Are you heavily influenced by the Spirit of God? That's the, uh, that's the question. And Elizabeth was, and uh, the, the Spirit of God worked there also in, in little John. Very, very little John. A very interesting situation. Uh, what Elizabeth spoke then was directed by the Spirit of God, and it was a blessing upon Mary and her offspring. Elizabeth was overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Think of how overwhelmed you were when you realized what Christ did for you. Now put yourself in her situation and say, the hopes of all the years are now coming upon us me, Elizabeth, bearing this son, John, to be the forerunner of this son who Mary is bearing, and I'm in the middle of this. And she's realizing that God is fulfilling his promises to the nation of Israel with her and with Mary. And so she knows the plan of God. She knows that Uh, Gabriel had told her husband that John was going to be the forerunner, a messenger ahead of the Lord himself. I mean, we sit here and we think, boy, it'd be nice if the Lord would come. Elizabeth was like, the Lord is coming in the lifetime of my child. Wow, that's amazing. John's going to do what Elijah was prophesied later to do. Uh, She knew that other one was coming then, the Messiah, and it appeared that she figured out here that Mary was the virgin spoken of by Isaiah 7.14, that a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. She was the one carrying the Messiah Lord, and so she felt so privileged to be in the presence of this one and so near the Christ child. Elizabeth acknowledges the truth that God has placed favor upon Mary, She says in verse number 42, she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. I suspect this is a summarized kind of caption of what happened. The greeting happened, the babe leaped in her womb, and then they start having a lengthy conversation about things. The older, the elder lady to the young lady and sharing what had happened to them. And Mary says, look, the the angel came and I, 
I said, okay, whatever you say. And, and Elizabeth is like, oh, glad you're being obedient to the Lord. You know, blessed are you because you believed. You know, my husband over here, <laughs> he's, he's clammed up now for a while because he had a little trouble believing what the angel said um, about Zacharias. So she acknowledges the truth that God has placed favor upon Mary and that the word of God would be fulfilled to, to her, but let's do this too and keep her blessing in proper proportion. We uh, fenced in this idea of blessing to Mary last week a little bit so that we would be sure that our view of the blessing of her would not reach the level of veneration or worship. This is because, first of all, Mary was favored by God. She is not the source of her favor, a favor God granted to her, but not based on her merit at all. Secondly, God favors all believers in Christ with a similar favor, Ephesians 1.6. We saw that last week. Third, we read in Luke chapter 11.27. Let me uh, just read that because it's interesting in this connection. In Luke 11.27, and it says, And it happened as he, Jesus, spoke these things. A certain woman came sorry, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jesus was deflecting praise from his mother, specifically toward the larger group of people who obey God's word. Those are the really blessed ones. Now Mary was one of those, but not the only one, because she too obeyed the word and will of God. One thing that's interesting, I uh, was reading in a commentary uh, yesterday or this morning on this and uh, think, thinking of Elizabeth, and you know, she showed no, no hint of jealousy for what had happened to Mary. She was just as thankful as could be, as humble as could be, uh, and just a wonderful situation there that came out from this speech that she gives. Now, let me give a little bit of background about uh, Mary. She, she had to know something of the Messiah. In fact, her praise in this passage indicates that she was well informed about the law and the prophets. I personally do not believe that this Magnificat came out of nowhere. In other words, it's not like Mary was dull and she didn't have any you know, thing going on in her brain and all of a sudden the Spirit of God fills her with these words. No, not that. Rather, she was a young woman who was well instructed in the things of God, having probably gone to synagogue, participated in, in worship in Jerusalem for all of her young years, and she knew the Word. She knew the promises of God, and that stuff gets coalesced and comes out in this speech, which of course was influenced by the Spirit of God and uh, Luke was able to get a hold of it so that he could write it down completely accurately for us. She was well informed about the, the Old Testament. She probably knew Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman. I, I don't know exactly the psychology of a young Jewish woman, but would they hope that they might be the one who would bear the seed for God? She was the one. She knew Isaiah 7, 14, that a virgin would give birth, and Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6, that this one would be God, 
with us, the mighty God who would rule over his people, Israel. Certainly not a frequent thing that a virgin would have a child. She knew it was very unusual and just how privileged she was. In the beginning of this Magnificat, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She clearly identifies God as her Savior, recognizing herself clearly to be a sinner just like the rest of humankind who needed a Savior. She knew that she fell short of the perfect standard of God. We know that Mary was just like anyone else, born like anyone else, not immaculately conceived so as to avoid the stain of original sin. No, she had sin like the rest of us. The Bible mentions, for example, the normal days of purification that she was to participate in. Luke chapter 2, we'll get to that later. She offered a sacrifice for that, and this was all in accordance with the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 12, where a woman who bears a son was unclean for seven days, and another 33 and after that would bring a burnt offering and a sin offering to the temple. They did do that. Mary continues to worship God by expressing who God is and what he has done to help her and to help others. And that's the remainder of the text of this song that she gave or this poem that she spoke. And I've broken it down into four reasons why she could praise God. I thought I had so much time left. This watch is telling me different. Um, reason number one for her praise is that God has done great things for Mary. I, I, I titled a message this morning, God is Worthy of Praise, and I thought to myself, shouldn't I say why? And then I said, no, I'm not going to say why, because I want you to think of why. I want you to dig into the message a little bit and say to yourself, why is God worthy of praise? If you have no other reason for praising God, you do have this reason, that God has done great things for you. Everything that you have, everything that you are, your existence, your health, your strength, your mind, your capabilities, your gifts, your family, your possessions, your home, your car, your money, your interpersonal connections with everybody, the school that you go to, everything has been provided by the Lord. He could have easily birthed you in a place where you don't have that or given you cancer when you were four years old or you know, allowed you to get that or whatever. Everything you have is from the Lord. I haven't even mentioned about salvation yet, have I? that you have that, and you can say, God has done great things for me like Mary does. Listen to how she says it. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary testifies that God looked on her not only from afar, and that he saw with compassion, he considered and cared about her specifically. Now, she readily admitted that she was a lowly person, referring undoubtedly to her social and economic status. She said, I am your maid servant. It basically means she was God's slave. She, she said as much in 138 when she told Gabriel she wanted things just to be the way that God wanted them to be. 
And uh, we talked about that before and said, what a great example that she is. As, the God, as God wills, may that be the, the case in my life. As God wills, may that be the case in your life. And so it should be because she tells us in verse 49 that God is mighty and holy. He is all-powerful and he is perfect. Why should he not get to direct things the way that he sees fit to direct them? if he's almighty and he's holy. God's regarding of her low estate resulted in a very honorable place for Mary, namely that all generations would call her blessed. Now, taking this rightly, fenced in as we have talked about before, we ought to consider her blessed by God. She was singled out despite her lowly condition for a great service for God. God did great things for her. Isn't that like God? He exalts the lowly, and he humbles the proud. We'll see that again here. When we consider this, we can put ourselves into her shoes. We are lowly in our estate in sin. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places if we believed in his Son. What great things he has done for us, and what a happy condition that we have that was born out of a hopeless condition otherwise apart from God. So God has done great things for Mary. She can thus praise him. But reason number two, God has mercy on those who fear him. God has mercy on those who fear him. Another reason to praise him. Genuinely God-fearing people receive the gift of God's mercy. Look at verse 50. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. She gives a truth here that, is, that, that spans the generations. There is no generation when this is not true. God's mercy is upon those who fear them in any fear him rather in any generation. All people who are are called upon to fear God, that is to recognize and reverence him for who he is, and God gives mercy to those people. Remember the man who went up to the temple to pray? And he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner? Have you ever cried out like that to God before? God, have mercy to me, a sinner. (laughs) Multiple times, many times, when you've fallen into temptation and fallen into sin, when you've said what you shouldn't have said, done what you shouldn't have done, or not done what you should have done, have mercy, O God. He gives mercy to those who fear Him. But, but who, who is a truly God-fearing person? You know, many times people say they pray to God or believe in God or thank God for life and health. And yet, as true as all these things may be, no one can be a truly God-fearing unless they submit themselves to the authority of God and His Word and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 23, the Bible tells us, unless you honor the Son as you honor the Father, you don't do honor to the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So today, a God-fearing person must believe in Jesus Christ, else he gives evidence that he's not truly fearing God. So God gives mercy to those who fear him. Then verse 51 through 53, I'll read that section next. He, it says, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. God demonstrates his strength by powerful actions. He scatters the proud 
Uh, an example that I cite in my notes is Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Who was more proud at the time than Nebuchadnezzar? God put him down, didn't he? Right into the paddock where he could eat some grass for a while and think about things. He puts down the mighty. He sets up and he puts down rulers as he pleases. God sets them in their places, Romans chapter 13 and verse number 1. He moves the heart of the king wherever he wishes. He exalts the lowly, the text tells us. One example of that is, of course, what he did for Mary. She was a world-famous nobody. You know what I mean? A nobody who became world-famous. And then she says this, very interesting. He has filled the hungry with good things, foreshadowing in, in a way 30 years later when her son would preach the Beatitudes, in which he would say in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. She foreshadows that. She recognizes that truth. He has filled the hungry with good things. I don't think she's just thinking about food like what we're going to eat at our lunch tables today, but with righteousness. But on the other hand, he sent the rich away empty. Looking forward to Matthew chapter 19, verse 36, a certain rich young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the man didn't want to get rid of all of his things because he was attached to those things. And so he went away empty, didn't he? He didn't receive the Lord or his love, his forgiveness, his salvation. In material terms, my friends, riches are fleeting. You may have some now, but by the time of your death, you won't take any of them anywhere with you. You have to leave them behind. Finally, reason number four, that Mary can praise God, is because God has helped Israel. God has helped Israel. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So reflecting on Gabriel's announcement that Jesus would be given David's throne and reign over Israel forever, Mary says that he has helped his servant Israel. Israel's long-awaited prophesied king was on his way. He would be taking over and ruling the nation. But note again the word servant. It was used before of Mary. Now it's used of the entire nation of Israel. Many times in the Old Testament, God wants the nation of Israel to serve him. In other Old Testament passages, the nation is sometimes called God's servant. And here, it's a word that can mean a child as well. So it could be uh, Israel, his, his son. Exodus 4.23 ties these two notions together and calls Israel both God's son and his servant. Remember how he would speak to Pharaoh uh, you know, and, and talk about, out of, out, of, out of Egypt I called my son, my servant, let my people go, my children Israel. The main point of these verses is that God, through the soon coming birth of the Messiah, was helping his servant Israel because he was keeping his promises to them. And this is where Mary is just steeped in the hope that comes from knowing the promises of God. She knew the promises to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, those which we just looked at in the, in the book of Genesis over the last months. Uh, consider... Exodus 32, 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, 
I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And of course, you have the promises of the Davidic offspring being a king, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, and all these things she would have been familiar with. The nation was not in such good shape at the time, being under the rule of the Romans, but the faithful remnant was looking for help from God and it was about to be delivered. And they had accounted on God and, and were not disappointed at that time. Let me just say this as I close here for a moment. Uh, take a moment to take stock of this fact. There is no self-help in the Bible. There is God-help, but no self-help. God helped Mary. He helps those who fear him. He helps the nation of Israel. He helps you. It's God who raises up the lowly. It's God who did great things for young Mary. It's God who provides mercy. It's God who helps Israel. The saying, God helps those who help themselves, is entirely misdirected. Of course, we ought to be active participants in what God wants us to do and be obedient and hardworking and diligent and not lazy and all of that, but to make God's help secondary to ours gives us a whole lot more credit than what we deserve. Rather, we should say God helps those who cannot help themselves. The fact of the matter is that the Christmas gift that we would focus on more if this were in December is someone we all desperately need. Without him, we will perish in our sins, but if we receive him, we'll live eternally with God's help all the way. And then we can be like Mary, extolling God for all the good that he's done with all of our innermost being. I'm impressed, as I indicated earlier, with how well Mary knows her Bible. Now, the Hebrew Bible was the whole Bible at the time. That is, the Old Testament up to Malachi. That's all they had. Okay? This stuff we're reading here didn't come until decades later. Mary was, the, uh, was in on the ground floor and probably spoke to Luke and gave this information. Who knows how that actually passed to him, but uh, the Spirit of God made sure that it did. But she knew the Bible. Uh, her song arose from her knowledge of the Word of God. Her words, in fact, sound a lot like another woman who was with child back in the day. Let me read it in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. And so on. The Old Testament little miniature version of the Magnificat, if you will. If you will. She seems to be very familiar with Habakkuk chapter 3, Psalm 35, Isaiah 61, 10, Psalm 138, 103, 147, 107, probably because they would sing these psalms or chant them in the synagogue service. Many Abrahamic covenant passages were on her mind and others as well. She had a holistic understanding of how God promised to work with his people across the ages. I think the application should be quite obvious to us. We're not going to understand God and his program very well if we don't know what he said in his book. So let us reserve, resolve, rather, to know the word 
so that we don't fall into foolishness. And I'll just make one other note that I added to the end here. Despite the reputation of Nazareth, remember that reputation? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, Joseph, who was a just man, and Mary, who was a godly young woman, they came out of Nazareth, and so did their son Jesus. So some good things did come out of Nazareth, even if there was a lot of sin there as well in the early first century. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to look at the Word and to see this short segment of text. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to be as knowledgeable in the Word of God as Mary was, that you would help us to be as ready to extol you as Mary was, that we would be of a mind to fear you and to receive your mercy and to acknowledge our help comes from the Lord. In Jesus' name.